Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the next podcast here at Treknababble. This is Kevin. This is Matthew. And uh, we're sitting down to uh, watch the first part of uh, the two-parter, Homefront and Paradise. Uh, I remember uh, season four has already, you know, felt like a marked increase in quality and narrative energy uh, over the previous seasons. And I, I like season three on the balance just fine, but season four obviously is where the show got, I think, really good. And I and I recall thinking of this two-parter as a bit of a watershed moment where I, I think it really felt like this is the story Deep Space Nine is uniquely suited to tell over its... Um, and Voyager was on at this point, so I think of all the f- modern franchises, this two-parter feels like the most Deep Space Nine story that Deep Space Nine has told to date. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you know, there, the way you feel about it, I mean, I, I probably am not spoiling much to say that I think we're both going to end up liking this episode. Um, but how you feel about it or the way you evaluate it might be kind of tied to when you watched it. Because if you watched it in its first airing, you know, you'd probably be like, oh, wow, that was a really good, you know, sort of well-told story with interesting angles and stuff. But then if you watch it, you know, on DVD or you know, in reruns after 2001, let's say, uh, you might think, you know, wow, that was eerily prescient, you know. Uh, you know, the way they predicted the the rise of a security state, you know, with a terrorist threat. Uh, but then there's a third perspective, which is watching this after having seen Star Trek Into Darkness, which, you know, we don't have to get into a big thing about it, but it's essentially this story told much, much, much worse uh, with Khan thrown in for some reason. You know? Do you see what I'm saying, Kevin? Yeah, no, yeah. Like, it, it, I remember thinking about this this episode when I forget who in the creative staff of Into Darkness was, or even 2009 was discussing, you know, Star, Star Trek, this Star Trek in context of a post-2001 world, and I just remember thinking, oh, well, Homefront did that better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't want to spoil, like, we'll get, we'll analyze the episode as we watch, you know, as we watch it, obviously, but I think what appealed to me even at the time and appeals to me even more now sort of you know in context like in context of the series as a whole and my increased ability to analyze the art that i watch um there's just something art there's something very artful about the i don't i don't know if you can call it allegory because it's pretty i don't think it's necessarily buried enough to be an allegory but it's it's a very interesting analysis of Star Trek's point. And, and, and eventually it's what I come to view Deep Space Nine as sort of like it's Deep Space Nine's reason to exist as something different than Voyager and something different than Next Gen is, I think, to examine the optimism of Roddenberry's vision in a world that doesn't necessarily share it. And I think this might be the, you know, certainly one of the best explorations of that. So I, I enjoyed seeing the Star Trek universe, because I, I think even as a kid, um, I always wondered, you know, is the Star Trek universe just, is it too nice to really function? Is everyone just one degree artificially awesome for this to be a real functioning society? So I kind of enjoyed um, and still enjoy now seeing it sort of put through its paces, like really 
challenged by something, really scared of something, to see how people respond to that. Cause I, I, and and you're right. It, it, the fact that this came out years before we started dealing with this issue as an actual society, I think, makes it an even better episode rather than one just, you know, chasing. Because, I mean, what movie is not a goddamn 9-11 parable at this point is there a single movie about america military surveillance technology people or anything that's been made any drama that's been made in the last five or six years that's not even if it's just self-delusionally claiming it to be some kind of analysis of our security state this may ask that question when it wasn't an urgent one and i I, actually i enjoy this episode more for that yeah well i'm sure that uh iris steven bear and robert hewitt wolf you know have indulged in a few, you know, self pats on the back, uh, you know, having done it. Um, I'm sure people at conventions praise them for it. You know, I don't want to go too overboard with praising it before we we really, uh, you know, get into it. I think there are, there might be room for improvement in some areas. You know, you called it very artful, and in some ways, you know, having watched it just recently, I think. Certain aspects of it are a bit transparent or, on the other hand, are a bit too simple or maybe even some motivations are a bit opaque, Um, certainly not to the level of Into Darkness. But, you know, I'm interested to see if this, you know, shakes out to be like an all-time great or if it's, you know, just really cool but has a few flaws. Uh, So we should just go ahead and jump in. Okay, I'm queued up. Yeah, so at home you should get queued up too. And we will all engage simultaneously in three, two, one, press play. So here's one thing uh, that I want to make a note of to see if it holds up over the next two hours. This sort of plot device of the wormhole, you know, sort of opening and closing, right? Uh, And I don't want to spoil too much, but I want to consider this in tandem with uh, the actual terrorist attack itself. You know, like, this seems... I mean, I'll just say it. One thing I'm unclear of is whether the terrorist attack really occurred and was the, the the work of the changelings, or if it was the work of what's his face? So, because it seems like a, quite a coincidence that they're getting this message from Starfleet security at the same time as this wormhole thing is happening, when presumably it would have taken several weeks of uh, planning and foresight to get you know a, a Starfleet vessel to the other side and set up what it's going to set up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, um, watching it now, I do realize it does seem like the the wormhole thing seems to predate the um, attack on the diplomatic conference. But what, what well, it, and if if that's the case, that's fine. It, I I just feel like it's not really spe- spelled out. Yeah, so. I, they, they could have clarified it better. I would say I never read the terrorist attack itself as some kind of cons- as part of the conspiracy or a staged event, and I actually think that improves the episode because. I, I think it, it's ludicrous to say 
that's you know because the, the same conversation about 9-11 happened about pearl harbor 50 years ago where it's like was was it somehow knowingly permitted to happen staged whatever to precipitate the actions the government wanted to take and i think it's far more likely uh you know even in a worst case scenario a savvy or an ethical political leader would take advantage of an event rather than conspire to bake the event so i think they could I, and I, that's how I, I always read the episode it's not that Leighton, you know faked or was the actual culprit behind the conference bombing but he simply capitalized on it when it happened and even if he, i could even believe that he had a plan in place to capitalize on an event any event should that event come to pass and i i agree they they, they eventually could have clarified it better well i think the story would have been better had there been a question and an answer yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like if it had been questioned and it had been answered, even if the answer was that it was a coincidence. Yeah. Because you're right. You know, he could have been planning. This could just be a, a failsafe mechanism to always have an excuse. Right. You know, which, when, which, I, which I think hews both more to history on these events and is more dramatically interesting. Like, yeah. Like, uh, cause basically, yeah, we'll, we'll just watch the episode, but, um, my only problem with this scene here um, is Cisco saying, uh, Worf, show Odo what you showed us, m implying Worf discovered the changeling in the video. Mm. When it's that, that's like one of those like preternaturally magic moments of our crew being the bestest at everything. Like, you figure Starfleet Intelligence would have seen this before sending them the video. That that always nagged me. It's little little yeah. stuff like, if there's someone at Starfleet whose job it is to do that all the time, somehow doesn't do it, that always nags me. You know, it's um, another aspect of this. I mean, first of all, it is a gratuitous enhanced moment. Um, but yeah, they got they got the HD back in the M4. That was well done. People. Good <laughs> enhancing. <laughs> well, and you know the the wide angle was like fuzzy and blurry, and the enhance it's like well, how do cameras work in the 24th century? Um, anyhow, at least they didn't like pan around an object that was there. It's like computer remove, <laughs> you know that dude. Um, but they're making it out to be as if it's just a visual identification and not like spectrographic data or, you know, like, yeah. like anything further, um, you know, cause I mean, sure. It kind of looks like a changeling, but can you take that as ironclad evidence or, you know, but they just take it as, as gospel that, you know, well, it this is obviously a changeling attack. Like the, the changeling goo. And it was a vase before that. I mean, I, I think it's a, I think it's a pretty solid prima facie case that it that it was a changeling, but uh, I, I they could have done a little more investigating. But well, one of the reasons I say that is because they've got this whole Odo furniture thing that takes up like two or three minutes, and I just wonder if those two or three minutes could have been better spent, uh, you know, just fleshing out some of these details. Um, so one of my sort of questions about the the story in general is if it just moves a little too quickly for its own good, like people. So we we've only been. I mean, I, I, on the one hand, they do take their time, you know, with the journey to Earth, uh, but then it just seems like Cisco is made, you know, head of Starfleet security or whatever really quickly. Um, 
So we'll see. Uh, either way, you know, it's certainly an interesting teaser. Well, I think it certainly piques the interest of, of any viewer. Um, I mean, the question really is, uh, you know, if you were watching this for the first time, it's like, huh, so are they going to, like, deal with something here? Like, is it going to be an invasion or what, right? Yeah. I've always, I always liked Odo's uh, objet art. Hmm. I kind of wonder if it was, uh, like, if he contracted someone, like a sculptor on Bajor or something. Yeah. And, yeah, so here, here's another sort of species of question that I have. Um, you know, I just watched it, like, two days ago, but I forget the Admiral's name. Wait. Uh, yeah, I keep thinking Pressman because of the Pegasus. Um, Admiral Layton calls Cisco and Odo to Earth to help, right? But is that really the thing that he wants to do if Cisco isn't already involved? You know, it's like Layton seems to have this sort of coterie or cabal of people who are on board with his plan. Why would he introduce an unstable element to the equation? Um, I think I think doesn't the episode presume like I think it demonstrates that he presumes that he could lean on Cisco's loyalty to get him involved, and I think it's one of those even if his instinct were not to involve Cisco and Odo for that matter in his investigation, I don't think like like that would just well, be the next like logical Odo step. Be the he, ultimate, he, he Odo should be the ultimate. Odo should be the ultimate. Yeah. Odo would be the guy that you'd be like, oh, yeah, we should not get Odo involved. But because you're just introducing another changeling who can do changeling-y stuff, you know, to thwart your plan. Uh, but it just it just seems like if Cisco, why wouldn't he have started working on Cisco already? You know, why bring him into the into the fray during the critical moment, you know? Uh Anyway, this stuff is good. We always like Brock Peters. Uh, you know, he's been fun in everything he's been in, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Star Trek wise. Yeah. You know, and, and this is an interesting sort of idea: aging in the Federation. I'm glad that we're talking a little bit about it. Um, and Jake is finally back on the show for some reason. Um. You know, so as far as pacing goes, I do like these scenes because it it sets up a bit more of an emotional storyline. Yeah. Uh, for the for their family. Um, and I think the episode eventually mines it well for for drama. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't have to introduce a new character who we'll never see again just for the sake of demonstrating the severity of the crisis. So I like that they worked it in, and I like anytime they remember characters' continuity. Cisco's father's a chef. We knew that, so it's nice yeah. to see him be a chef. This scene seems like totally superfluous to me, <laughs> and I I kind of don't like when Colmini is acting like anybody but Colmini. And I know I just said that in the uh, Arman Bashir episode, but and it's not that he's bad. It's just maybe it's like he's so good 
as O'Brien that it bugs me when he's not O'Brien. I don't know. <laughs> uh, like it's certainly not like Bashir's pirate voice or something, but but why is this scene happening? You know, it's just like their contract said they had to get a couple minutes per episode. I would rather have more on Earth. I would rather learn more about the Federation, you know, than have this little character vignette, which could have been in any other episode. Like, there's just, there's no real relation. I don't know. Dude. I don't mind it. I mean, it's it's interesting. I'm not it's bad. I mean, I'm just saying, as far as filler goes, it's certainly not distracting or derailing. And uh, I don't know. I, I kind of like the juxtaposition that their recreational holodeck programs are wars on earth and when an actual one happens they're understandably pretty freaked i kind of like that well yeah i mean they're doing an okay thing here it's like people discussing faraway crises and how they feel impotent to do anything about it and i do appreciate that the story does not bring the entire crew to earth you know I, i have my concerns and questions about bringing cisco and odo to earth at all but at least it's not like this total contrivance where, I mean, kind of like uh, past tense, right? Yeah. Because it's like, what the hell are they all doing? <laughs> it's like, well, let's have the entire crew, you know, the entire command crew of this, you know, deep space station just leave, right? That would be like having, uh, you know, like every key member of the government go on some diplomatic trip. It just doesn't make sense. You'd send one person, maybe two. And like this. Do me a favor. Stop by and visit my folks in Dublin. Can't you just call them? You're going to send this freaky alien dude to a planet that's just been attacked by a changeling, and he probably has better things to do, but you're asking him to go to Ireland if you have a chance. I think I think you've del- crossed the delicate line into overthinking the throwaway dialogue in the episode. <laughs> Well, my my point is, why is there throwaway dialogue? You know, it doesn't need to be I don't there. mind it. Like, I, I, I don't mind these character moments because if nothing else, it's not like they're throwing together random characters with random interests. The, the Hollow Sweet programs, Bashir and O'Brien's friendship, their recurring themes in the show. And I think it would have – I think this episode is probably one and a half episodes of drama because I think it would have been – bad to make this a one part a single a standalone mm-hmm. episode we wouldn't have had time for the drama to actually break absolutely but it, the two-parter does give you a little more time to flesh out stuff i'm i'm happy with slice of life stuff i don't i mean i don't think every especially in a two-parter as long as every scene is self-contained interesting i can forgive not every scene having an integral role to play in progressing the the main plot of the episode like if if it were annoying or vapid or stupid or distracting i i would be a little more annoyed but as it stands everyone's everyone's getting a minute to respond to the tragedy and possibly and and, and clarify who is and who is not going with to earth so we're what 10 or about uh, 13. 13 minutes in i don't really feel like i'm wasting time everything said a t- everything was tonally useful like everyone's unnerved and trying to handle things so that that's that's fine and now we're back at earth and the water reclamation plant that has served as starfleet's uh, one of starfleet's buildings forever yeah um, they had a very nice uh, i don't know it looked like it may have been a digital map yeah 
showing Starfleet Command, there was a some sort of transport tube that had a number 47 on it. Um, and uh, Susan Gibney, great actress. I'm really sad. Like, she was apparently up for uh, Janeway. She was up for Janeway. And yeah. she was too young. And they, the solution to that is to add another character and then cast her as it. Um, yeah. <laughs> she's a great actress. Love her to well, bits. Well, and what, what's impressive about her performance here is that she, if you didn't really think about it, you wouldn't go, oh, that's Leah Brown. Right, right. I forget which one of the books it was, but it posits they're actually sisters, which I, it, that's one of those moments when the books get too cute for me, <laughs> when you try yeah. to incorporate every real world reference in the show, but, it, it, you know, okay, whatever. Um, they picked the correct Admiral's uniform, thank God. Um, oh, that's a good look. I think it's the same thing Pressman wore, I think he has more pips than Pressman did, but still. Especially for the the slightly paunchy middle aged man, they tend to cast as an admiral. It's the correct choice. <laughs> I you know I like the dialogue. Uh, the greatest danger we've faced since the last world war. Um, you know I don't know if that's greater than the Romulan War, which we've never really found out about. But hey, whatever. The Borg, but you know. Yeah, the Borg. <laughs> you know. Well, and they will mention the Borg yeah. several times. Okay, my my only question about. Cisco's restaurant is how this works in the economy. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we've questioned <laughs> mm-hmm. this before. Is fresh food harder to come by than replicated food? Is it valued more highly? Is this just an art thing? Do people value Cisco's artistic, like, food expression, and this is why they would go rather than simply, you know, get it out of their replicators? I'm not. Well, and I could certainly see that, but, you know, let's say that all of those things are being valued. What are they exchanging for? Right. It? Who 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 would be a busboy in the future? I, I mean, yeah. I I do kind of I do question that, but well, yeah. there's an area where the novels actually did a good job. Uh, the Homecoming novels. Yeah. Christine Golden posited that you know janitors and waiters are holographic. Yeah. Which does make a certain amount of sense. I mean, it raises questions of if you're going to install hollow projectors in like every building in the federation but i will uh one of the things we've always liked about the show even when it had other problems um is the you know cisco father and son relationship and they really knocked it out of the park um with the grandfather they like i completely buy this multi-generate like this is this is just great scenes A little suspicious. When he says the Borg scare, um, you know, it, like I kind of wonder if the writers were thinking about Best of Both Worlds or if they were thinking about First Contact. I don't think First Contact comes out till the summer after yeah. this. Yeah, you're right. Because presumably people would still be aware that there was a Borg vessel, you know, approaching Earth in First Contact. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it got and then it to just Earth. Yeah. Okay, so I guess it must be best of both worlds. But, you know, great reference anyway. Yeah. Like, it makes the universe feel real. And it, it took two seconds, less than two seconds, right? Uh, but it makes the universe feel real. And it, it ties all the shows together. But I agree with you. Um, it's like the way that Avery Brooks and Sir Lofton have built uh, a particular kind of rapport it, it's like the actors here, Brock Peters, you know, they're making choices to do the same things. No, yeah, like uh, this, this, in all the all the times that uh, 
Brock Peters has been on uh, on the show, I always that there there is a very strong sense of continuity of the the three generations of actors, and I, you know, they clearly did their homework, um, and it it's really nice and. And I like seeing Nog. Um, oh yeah, definitely. No, I'm a fan of that. Okay, and I like I like that uh, that Nog's apparently a regular, which I mean <laughs> it make it makes sense that. Uh, well, like maybe Cisco told him to check it check in on his dad or something. Yeah, and you know, I mean it also again, sort of belying the idea of transgalactic communication, but whatever. Well, okay, we technically have the ability to contact people, you know easily across vast distances. I think we would still place a premium on in-person contact. Um, I also like that uh, despite, you know, living in San Francisco, the idea that he could be in New Orleans as like a casual thing. Like if you actually had transporters, distances would mean something different, especially on a planetary scale. And I like any time they subtly acknowledge what that would look like. Well, what's interesting about that though, is that in a previous DS9 episode, Cisco talks about how he used up all of oh, his, his transporter credits, yeah, rations, yeah, uh, to go from San Francisco to New Orleans. So maybe that policy is relaxed or something. These this leads to questions about the economy. Like, what does Nog pay? Does he pay? Do you just go to this place for free? Are there reservations? You know, like some some labor must have gone i mean certainly into the preparation of food but also the procuring of the ingredients and uh you know the i mean let let's say for the sake of argument that like power is free water is free you know all, all of the resources that go into it are free but labor is not and you're absolutely right you know who's going to be a busboy are they apprentices are they learning how to make restaurants of their own it i don't know it uh, this is the kind of thing where I feel like if they had spent some of those minutes that were spent on sort of superfluous stuff, I mean maybe they consciously. You, you, I think don't. I think you're being a little optimistic to think they were going to solve the internal philosophical problems of Federation economy in a in a, in a snip, few snippets of dialogue because I, I think I, they think, could have. I think I collective, really collectively the writers have failed to do that over the last fifteen well, years. I. I think they probably are staying away from the question, but that's that's an issue. You know, they're staying away from the question, but they're creating scenes that raise the questions that they're staying away from. All right, what do we think of the president's office? I, I like the seal. I like the view of Paris. Yeah, so it's Jerish and Yo. Uh, yeah, it's a nice set. I, uh, mean, I, I also like that they put. Because uh, I think they did that in Star Trek Six as well. Like it was Paris out of the president's window, ten forward windows, it, yeah. It, yeah, out of the ten forward windows. I like the idea that Starfleet and the Federation's governments are distinct entities. Because I think, I think there's a certain sense of just because it's always Starfleet Command issuing the orders, Starfleet Intelligence, Starfleet Science, Starfleet Medical. You get, in absence of some other meaningful political body, the present, the, the sense that uh, Starfleet is the Federation government, and I enjoy the physical separation, which would make sense in a not-military, you know, dictatorship. Well, and it's a good thing to do for the story, you know, because the story really does uh, hinge on the fact that these are two separate entities, and one is trying to 
you know, take over the other. Right. Um, so it it's functional just as a story device too. Uh, you know the the way they've lit the outdoor view is really good. Like it it actually feels like sunlight. Yeah. The way it's filmed, you know, there's that sort of distortion. Yeah. Um. And you know the the, the office has that sort of vaguely bureaucratic, you know, stuffy feel, like the beige walls and the <coughs> corporate furniture, yeah, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I'm a fan of this. Well, and you know, one thing that makes um, I, I like the fact that they made the president an alien, yeah, not a human, because it it underscores how different the Federation is from our current society. Uh, and someone watching this post two thousand one, like he, he's practically wearing a turban, you know. Yeah. So I mean, it's like, you know. It, it doesn't go so far as to like make the the president a practicing Muslim or something, but uh, you know, it's just like all these people who are different, you know, they still have their prejudices, you know, they still have their worries about the other, you know, even though they're all together and they're not the other, uh, there's still this other uh, entity, you know, the changelings. Yeah, I like her hair. That's a good hairdo. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very professional. Right, it's, woman. it's 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 not the uh, like basket weave beehive. Um, what set is this? Was this the set they used in Tapestry, a Starfleet Academy? This is a standing set of some kind. Those they did not well, make those doorways. This set is a redressed uh, version of the set we've just seen, the president's office. Yeah. Like I think they just moved a few things around. You know, that door frame, I, you know, I don't know. I don't think, I feel like this is probably made for this show. This doesn't strike me as anything that's been on TNG. So this is introducing the thread of the story with Red Squad. And that's kind of another, I just don't know. You have this master plan. Would it really hinge on like 19-year-olds doing what well, they need to do and not gossiping about it on Facebook? Well, uh, you know, I've been listening to this podcast on the history of ancient Rome. It's it's pretty good. I'm, uh, I think I, ju I, ju I just witnessed the end of the Severan dynasty in the year 220-something. Um, and something I've, so I've been thinking about, you know, military dictatorships and grabs for power and plots and things. And a couple of recurring themes are uh, the way you create a loyal um, group of military officers is promote. Um, if people owe their careers to you, they're more inclined to do what you tell them, which makes using the cadets make a little more sense. These aren't high schoolers. This isn't, uh, uh, what was that one about the high schoolers repelling uh, the Russian invasion? Like, these are... These presumably are, you know, some pretty competent people. We let Wesley drive the Enterprise. Um, oh, sure. And I mean, they're, they're I, the best and the brightest. Right. I, I think agree. they're in the perfect position to be able to do what Leighton wants them to do and inexperienced enough to tell him no. Well, 
I, I agree on the, you know, like they're young and impressionable, so they make a perfect sort of target for recruitment to something like this. But also, I mean, a, a young college student, which is what we're, you know, that's what we're to take these people as, right? Aren't you know, these upperclassmen, at least? I mean, well, that, they are. That's, so that's, they're between 18 and 22, let's say. You know, I mean, Nog is a first-year cadet, and he wants to join. So it makes me think that, you know, first-year cadets can join, too. Like, he's doing fucking side work, right? What the hell? <laughs> Isn't there a machine that can do this? I, as, a, as a former server myself, side work is the worst thing in the world, okay? Like, wrapping the fucking silverware in napkins is just the worst thing in the world because, you know, you're there... And the only way you make money is by actually serving people, but instead they having you do this stuff, and they're not really paying you for it, you know? And so in the future, really, the owner of the restaurant is doing this? Like, who would do it? Can't you just replicate the silverware? I don't know. It, it just bothers me. Well, given his, Luddite, his, his stated Luddite qualities, I could see him doing it himself. Sure. Um, even if it were automatically possible, but... Yeah, back to the Red Squad thing, like, they needed to have a thing that Cisco could find a way into, and Nog was the way in, and it was an established character, like, it was... A, well, this I, is what I'm saying, I feel like that's a little bit artificial, you know, the point I was going to make before I was derailed by side work is that, of course, these would make the most impressionable people, but also, they would be the most unstable, and there'd be they'd be the most want to have the sort of young teenage idealism where they would it, it, it would be like hiring a bunch of edward snowdens you know it's like yeah uh maybe some of these kids present a risk i just can't imagine like 20 20 year olds all hewing the line you know all of them doing do you know what i'm saying it's like even even in Nova Squadron, I mean, I, I kind of saw there that was dissension as... in the ranks about what the right thing to do was, and it's because people at that age, you know, have very strong sense of you know right and wrong, even if it's a very unsophisticated sense of right and wrong. And you know, I can just imagine somebody, you know, flipping out. I don't know, and, but based you know, on the at the interview we get with the Red Squad member. I kind of get the impression there was some self. There was like some self. It wasn't like he went to the extant Red Squad and said, "Oh, these are the great guys." I think he was grooming people to sure. be this group. So he picked the cocky people who, like, like much like America, I think there's a set. There's it's a shorter line than you'd think from America's awesome to therefore everything America does to maintain its awesomeness is also awesome by logical induction or something so i think he picked the people who would toe the line you could see like the children of career starfleet officers the 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 people who've never been told no in their lives the people who've always been successful like it's not like i could easily see this being like the douchey rich kids of starfleet academy all of whom are will, will go along with this or like i i met i met plenty of you know uh security warhawk republicans in college their arguments were unsophisticated, but they definitely believed what they were saying. I mean, I, I... So this is a fun scene. Yeah. Um, and 
and a good effect. Like the 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 bird is well done. The transition was was pretty good, and there was no obvious lighting snafus as occasionally there can be with those effects. So well done. Yeah, and you know the scene uh, does a good job of kind of setting up the rationale for doing all these tests, right? These blood tests. Okay, so a changeling has infiltrated Starfleet headquarters, imitated the Admiral. So we can assume that the changeling has uh, uncovered most, if not all, of Leighton's actual agenda, right? Yeah. And so I guess we're to take it that they just um, are just letting it occur yeah, I would, without... I, I, I would say much like the... Uh combined Cardassian Romulan invasion of their home world. They did not start the plan, but once finding out about it, they did nothing to stop it. Well, I, you know, I might be able to see an argument for that, but if they do want to uh, destabilize Earth, then what might, might it not be in their best interest to actually thwart Leighton's plans? Uh, because part of his plan is increased security and uh, you know actually preparing for the changelings. It seems like they should want to uh, sort of debunk any sort of things. Well, like this. I would say two things. One, the blood tests have never actually worked. It is my biggest problem with the hard-on for the blood test. I mean, Martok was a changeling. Um, uh, every t the the uh, the uh, the blood test was foiled the very first time it was used. Let's set aside yeah. the blood test. That Two, was such a that was such a Ron Moore Battlestar season four kind of thing. Like I think that um, they saw the end game of this as Federation civil war because I think Cisco will ultimately peg this problem pretty well. The other like the say Vulcan is not going to sit idly by while Starfleet stages a military coup. That is just not a thing that is going to happen. So I, I think they see the end game of this is not as a more secure Federation state, but a Federation state at war with itself. Yeah, okay. Um, I find it interesting that the sort of leftover uniforms from TNG yeah. are, are still in use for the extras. And so it, it's, I, a nice, it's a nice touch that Cisco is back in the uh, TNG-style uniform. Yeah. Um, it, I'm glad once we switch to the first contact uniforms, then there's uniform. Like, I was fine. Like, I'm fine. I get the idea that, like, because obviously there's variations of military uniforms. Maybe I, I'm, I've, I, we just got burned by generations so hard that <laughs> I want uniform uniforms again. I well, like. At least within a show. Yeah. And they, they do have some separation. Yeah. It's uh, what I like about. Okay, a couple things about the scene that I love. One, Joseph Sisko, charming, crotchety, elderly Joseph Sisko, just foiled the blood test plan right there in front of you while he's chopping onions. Have a reserve supply, exude it on command. Done. Blood test useless. Stop doing blood tests. Two, this is the best example I can think of of show me, don't tell me. Rather than having two people just debate the philosophy of a security argument we get people 
engaged in it. Sis, uh, Elder Cisco's position is that he does not have to disprove he is a changeling. You have to have evidence he is a changeling before you can investigate him for it. An, enti- an internally rational position to take in a society that, till now, has, I assume, some you know, comparable version of the Fourth Amendment in their laws that says you are not allowed to do searches unreasonably. He wants a reason. Cisco's position is you it literally could be anyone and this is a problem and we need to respond to it. So like I like seeing the debate played out rather than merely discussed. Well, and no one's really right or wrong, you know, and that's another hallmark of good Star Trek uh, sort of ethical dilemmas. It, you can see both sides and yeah. they both have a legitimate concern. Um, presumably it's one of the guarantees, like maybe the seventh guarantee. No, I think the seventh guarantee is, uh, that's the fifth amendment. Yeah. That's, that's the one, that's the one they just cribbed right out of the constitution. On the other hand, um, this does seem rather inconsistent with the sort of very liberal attitude, uh, people in this society seem to have about privacy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, the computer does always know where you are and what you're doing, but then so does mine. Um, I, I, I like that. I like the coda to this, like the, 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 the end to this scene. It's, it's not really a resolution of what's a rational security policy balanced against the need for civil liberties. It's the, 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 sharper, the sharpest moral lesson here is your paranoia is more dangerous than the thing you're afraid of. Yeah. And yeah, that, this is a very, it's an effective scene. Right. That is true regardless of which of these men is right about the blood tests. And I, so I, I like that's where they took the scene. Like even, even if Cisco is correct and that it is an internally rational policy to blood test high-level Starfleet officers and the people closest to them, period, Joseph's still right. And that that's a... F- and, and again, they didn't just say it, they showed it to me. They played it out in the character relationship of characters I already care about, so it's a very good way to do this. This is some pretty good uh, heart attack acting. I imagine after a certain age, um, especially for men, I think it must just be one of those things you have to know now like how to make it look like your left arm hurts like that that just got to be in your bag of tricks <laughs> maybe when they get recertified as an actor they, they have to do a one-hour seminar on that or something. heart attack acting yeah so it, it's neat that this is a different exterior view and apparently it's one of the bit bridges uh, it's not the Golden Gate Bridge. No. It's like the Bay Area Bridge or something, which is one of the longest bridges in the nation, uh, I do believe. Well, so, you know, Cisco here has, uh, he's absorbed the moral lesson. Uh, this desk is a reuse of some something from TNG. I think it was actually the desk that uh, the Admiral in Conspiracy was yeah, using. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting design, you know, and it it makes a certain amount of sense. It's a very clear desk for someone who is working on so many problems at once. Well, maybe you know, we've gotten past the point where we think each document needs its own pad. Well, 
granted, but I feel like maybe they could have dressed it with a few pads. few knickknacks, yeah. Just not not personal items, just but pads. just yeah, yeah, like like just to indicate the yeah. You should, my desk is not yeah, files on top of files with notepads and things, yeah. But I will say this: Cisco's I'm, desk is very clean on, on, on the station. Yeah, I will say I have always wanted to eat in Cisco's restaurant. I've having been to New Orleans, they did act, they really nailed the like architecture, color palette, space sense that, that that i recall and i really want to eat in cisco's restaurant the food looks good the colors look vibrant i really want to go there yeah i wonder if this is a location shoot because like some of these details like the, just the hardware on that door there right are... that's that's really that's either actually antiqued or incredibly well-crafted antique well and they've got like frosted glass with you know decoration i mean let's just it seems very real, and if, if they created it, great job. And if they found it, good scouting. So yeah. either way. And I like the the notion that a blackout would be something, you know, that would create planet planet wide panic. Uh, you know, for us, it's it's just a way of life, right? Yeah. It's like oh, some tree fell down, <laughs> you know, or there was there was a big storm. Well, I think it's realizing it's like the entire planet. Like I imagine sure. there have to be. I mean, as as awesome as I believe the Federation would be, I have to believe there's still like you know, the 24th century equivalent of a you know down power line every now and again. But I think it's the idea that it's everywhere that would be really upsetting. I will say though. So what what do we think those people are? His uh his ministers or his assistants? Because <laughs> they look pretty ministerial. That's like classic go to sci-fi. I'm the minister of such and such garb. They look like Federation officials straight out of the original series. I love the sunrise matte shot. Yeah. Um, you know, the skyscrapers in Paris, I have to wonder if they will ever be allowed. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I, I think I think they would rather nuke Paris than let you build a skyscraper next, like, in view of the uh, Eiffel Tower. But, you know, maybe French society, they're in a bit of a sort of ossified, um, you know, relationship with their own sense of superiority right now. But maybe 300 years from now, uh, you know, they'll relax a bit. <laughs> so we're getting sort of the all the, all the setup elements tied together here. We haven't, of course, been uh, – it hasn't been revealed to us that these are all Leighton's doing, but – you know, they're making a case that, you know, that this would be an effective way of achieving this particular end. Yeah. It's yeah, kind the, of almost the, look like tropical plants in Paris. I was going to say, the lighting guys really did their job. There's like something, like like the color, the light color is just awesome. Like it... it Really, do, it just it changes the emotional tenor of the scene. Everything's slightly surreal. The colors are slightly washed out. Like you know, it's sunrise, so obviously everyone must have been woken up by this. I like keeping track of what time it is. Where if it's you know the middle of the night, or if it's you know evening in uh, New Orleans, it would be sunrise in Paris. Like you know, nice little nice detail work. Yeah, I agree on the lighting. Definitely adds. A nice dramatic element. Um, 
you know, I kind of question how many people he could possibly have on the Lakota. And when you're talking about an entire planet, uh, you know, even if you have like 10,000 troops on the Lakota, which sounds like to me, like maybe the max you could have on an Excelsior class starship, um, you know, it would be like having 10,000 fish in the ocean, right? Well, I never read the coup as him, you know, garrisoning a legion and marching on Rome. Sorry. The, no, I'm, I'm just talking we're, about... We're going to have a lot of Rome references for a little while. It's a long history and it's very interesting. But I, I, I think this was like a... Like, I think the goal was to have enough people, like a small group of people in enough key positions that once this state of emergency was declared, um, it would not, like, they would just be there. It wouldn't be, it would be a bloodless coup, certainly. Well, I'm not really raising questions about that. Uh, it's going to be the sort of final scene uh, in the episode. And I like the fact that Odo has been kind of convinced by all the events. Yeah. He's not in on it, but, you know, it, it totally fits his character to be the, you know, we have to declare martial law, we have to clamp down, you yeah. know, you know, he's he's a very security order driven character, so it makes total sense. I, I think Cisco could have been a bit more uh, there's a, quite a pad close up there. I think Cisco could have been a, a bit more um, circumspect in the recommendation, given the scene that just transpired with his father. Yeah, they got a good actor to do that. You know, he he doesn't seem ineffectual or foolish. Uh, he he seems like he's genuinely, um, genuinely concerned on yeah. deep level. So this this is the scene that I'm talking talking about um you know like if there's ten thousand, let's say on the lakota oh i never read this as those were from the lakota this was this was starfleet security period this was this like because they don't i don't assume the guys walking the street in new orleans were in on it i think they were just the local detachment of starfleet security like they were just being told patrol the streets like that yeah, like maybe, i don't but... think they were conspirators they were just oh no i agree yeah. that they're not conspirators i'm not talking about i'm questioning whether yeah. that many people could keep the secret i'm questioning how many people you would need to declare and enforce martial, martial law, law over scale. an entire planet it seems like you would need at least a quarter of the population of a planet to do it you know maybe, maybe less but certainly more than they would have easy access to at this point and uh many more than would be than they'd have realistically to have five people show up at that intersection i can let that go i think that's just shorthand for well it's yeah it's they have to do it for dramatic purposes right, the tv but... show i mean i you know, you know, I often wonder that, like, as, as a society gets more technologically sophisticated, or the, the fancier the sink, how easy is it to stop up the drain? Like, how many people would you really need to arrest the function of a city the size of Chicago, assuming they had unlimited authority? And, you know, I mean, think of it, like, 
if they just stopped running the CTA, that would largely curtail where I would go outside of my neighborhood. Like, I mean, like if you think if you really wanted to seize the the operations of a major city, I don't think you would actually need a police officer on every intersection, individually policing. Especially if you if you're just talking like normal functioning, I think you could get pretty far interrupting a few smaller necessities that are just pervasive enough to be taken for granted. But like I said, I, 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 t- I take your meaning. It would obviously take a fairly large group of people to declare martial law on a planetary scale, but I think the scene we got was just supposed to be the dramatic version of the scene that we're supposed to read on a larger scale. Yeah, no, I understand. Um, now that the episode's over, I, you know, I should really just say that you know, I, I'm playing devil's advocate to some degree here. You know, I think it's a it's a lot of fun as a show. It's really the first extended, uh, you know, real visit to Federation Earth uh, in the franchise. Actually, I mean, there's conspiracy uh, in TNG, but that's that's a very um, it's very brief in many ways. You know, it, it's very closed. It, it doesn't give you a lot of uh, a sense of breadth as far as Earth goes. You know. Yeah. Um, did they visit Earth for the uh, first duty? I guess they did. Um, well, it was nice to see places on Earth not a Starfleet installation. Well, that that it's the first real visit to Earth culture, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's it's the first extended investigation of Earth culture. Like there was a little scene in the cage where they're having a picnic, um, you know. But almost every other extended visit to Earth has been either, you know, a time travel story. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, I'm just tickled as a fan to have an episode that goes to Earth and really delves into what it's like. Well, and the th- and uh, the thing, if the whole point of the episode is, uh, you know, what will the Dominion threat cost the Federation or and Earth in particular, and what are we willing to give up? on earth to protect it i you actually you you must show me those things so that i care yeah and and, you know the earth we got seems like a pretty awesome place all of the you know the grounds of all the starfleet buildings are lovely paris seems to be doing fine um i want to go to cisco's restaurant you know like you know questions about menial labor in the federation aside maybe it's like a religious thing where it's like i i fold these napkins because it's a valuable character building exercise or something but beyond that, it looked like a happy place. The kitchen, it, it looked like a cooking show. You know, it's like, oh, the, the food looks good. The customers look happy. It just it, it, All the views we got of Earth seemed to support the idea that Earth is, in fact, a pretty idyllic existence. Even the people making the food seem to really be enjoying themselves. Yeah. Um, now that I think about it, uh, family on TNG was another extended visit to Earth. Yeah. Although it was to a Luddite portion of well, it. there you go I, I i always enjoy somehow that every time we go back to earth one of the main people we meet is someone who rejects the technology that makes this awesome place that we want to live in possible and it's always a relation of a character there's something to that that every time a starfleet character goes home they have this luddite relative who hates technology I'm, i wonder what that's about but well it just makes you wonder how like is this an extremely common view 
uh, you know, is this like a third of the population? You know, because of course we've already had the episode with the, I forget what she's called, you know, but the movementarians, for lack of a better term, you know, <laughs> this cult that, uh, you know, is predicated on this rejection of Earth and all that it wants people to do. Um, I mean, of course, this whole story thread goes back to the way to Eden in TOS, you know, this notion that uh, something is too sanitized about this culture and something uh, valuable has been lost in the human experience. Um, well, I just like to picture in, in a lot of ways, it's kind of a it's kind of a lazy, uh, cheap way to manufacture drama. Because yeah, I, already, I, I just picture Joseph Sisko and Robert Picard having like a club meeting that they walk to. They walk to that meeting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but well, it, it always seems to be old people too. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, come on. These people were born at the latest in the 23rd century. Right, they were born during the original series. Like, And, you know, that that's one of those, like, I don't know how you would depict someone with 23rd century technology rejecting 24th century technology as too easy and dehumanizing. But if you could, that'd be an awesome episode. Well, because, you know, it, it brings up questions of people like, you know, Amish or Mennonites or something. And they're like... Oh yeah, no technology. Well, no, you're just freezing some sort of arbitrary date. Right, you're wearing eye, you're wearing eyeglasses, and yeah, that's exactly. it, that that's not you know like a cart on a log. That's a wheel with an axle and uh you know a a cartwright that is a or a wainwright. Excuse, oh, someone made that thing that had learned an art to make it. Sure, they learned it 1,500 years ago. I don't know from the Phoenicians or something, but it's still art it is still artificial it's uh, eyeglasses are the big one for me when it comes to people who reject medicine anytime <laughs> someone who says i don't believe in vaccination and says it from behind a pair of eyeglasses i want to go up and remove the glasses from their face like you know no one ever prays away nearsightedness believe me i've tried uh, it's just that that just drives me nuts like somehow the the lord wants your child to die of an easily treatable bacterial infection but doesn't want you to not be able to read the tv guide Nuh uh yeah. uh uh they're Satan's lenses. Deal with it. Uh, my kingdom for a reference to the neo-transcendentalists also. Um, you know, it would have made a lot of sense for that to be just a, a simmering undercurrent. And I, I'm sure I mentioned that during the previous episode with the, the movementarian yeah. cult. Um, anyhow, uh, so I like that a lot about this. Uh, we've already, you know, talked about and praised the aspects of the show, which you know, are, are eerily prescient, you know, it, it's, it's simply an interesting question. Well, know, and, how and, much, and not to how belab- much freedom are you willing to sacrifice? Right. And not to belabor the point um, about into darkness. We actually, uh, one, we have a credible threat that we, as the viewer understand, we have the dominion handily destroyed a galaxy class starship. The first time we met them, Jesus H Christ, that's scary. I spent seven years depending on the fact that that ship was going to be fine and then it wasn't scary people well look i mean you know even if this was the first episode of deep space nine you'd ever watched you're given enough information on screen yeah yeah changelings can can look like vases and they can blow people up and get away with it you know like that's enough to know that they're extremely dangerous you don't have to have watched any other episode right and then they send you to Earth, 
and they show you that Earth is really cool, you know. In Into Darkness, you know, I mean, adding to the fact that the whole sort of mystery plot is just incredibly obtuse and opaque, um, you know, you, you're never shown how great the Federation is, so you never know what you're actually losing, you know, and you're also never really shown the ostensible threat, which is the Klingons, you know. Here, the, the Dominion are the ostensible threat. We're shown them, or the, the changelings, rather. You know, the plot of Admiral Layton is quite clear. I mean, maybe too clear, maybe too simple, but, you know, it's quite clear. Uh, and we're actually shown the thing that is being threatened with destruction, you know. So this is, I think, what we both mean when we say this is like Into Darkness done ten times better. You know, this is just script writing 101. Well, I, I also really like that they showed a discussion about this problem. It wasn't done off screen. It's like... Well, yeah, there was a distressing lack of people shouting and running through corridors in this uh, episode. Yet it was still entertaining. Weird, right? Yeah. Yeah, there was no... <laughs> le- I, I could see the entire show despite the... Uh, with, with There were no lens flares, so I could actually see stuff. But... Uh, well, look, I mean... Sorry, we're getting a little get, field, but yeah. When you get down to it, there's really only like three sets, you know, that they create to depict Earth. You know, you've got the restaurant, you and you have two offices, and then there's one location, right? Yeah, a a park somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, they're only suggesting things, uh, you know, with good mat work and good lighting and good dialogue and good discussion. And they, they don't have to. It's, yeah, so. I, I also like that they made, uh, that y- y- you made a good point about Odo's character. Odo absolutely is a security over freedom guy. He, he He's willing to break, he's repeatedly shown his complete fine, he is completely fine breaking the letter of the law if it maintains his subjective sense of justice and i uh, you know we can include personal safety like he will absolutely spy on someone to make sure that they are not doing something bad he is completely okay with that and they didn't have him artificially abandon that because of a perceived anti-changeling sentiment like no you're right odo would be pushing these reforms yeah so you know this episode uh it's a great setup, you know. They, they've done everything I think they need to do, um, and really, uh, it seems like most of my larger questions about it come from the payoff. And so it's unfair to sort of criticize this particular episode for whatever sins might exist in the follow. Um, so you know. I, I think it's really well done. Uh, yeah. Um, the the acting, you know, I think they cast everybody really well. Uh, Layton is really well done. Uh, you know, Benteen, of course, we, we're big fans of the actress. Uh, Brock Peters in the, the Joseph Cisco role. You know, can't go wrong there. And the guy they got for Jerashenyo, you know, good job there too. And all the extras did a good job, you know, or, or all the bit parts. Yeah, you know. something I liked about the way they wrote the president. Uh, I, 
he he's a peacetime president. You know, you get the you're right. He's not stupid. He's not he's not a coward. He's just you you get the he's probably a pretty good bureaucrat. In I imagine of all the things the federation must need, it must be a skilled bureaucratic apparatus. So you get the impression, you know, maybe he's really good at like you know all the paperwork, and it's just this is not what. He well, or just just managing do. departments, or right? Something. Right. Yeah, he's a good CEO. Right, and and again, not to belabor the history of Rome podcast, which is actually pretty good, and I highly recommend to to everyone. It's uh, worth your time. Um, you know, some emperors better military tacticians, some emperors better at making sure everyone got grain. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, and maybe that that was a <clears throat> that was another problem I had with Into Darkness. Like, where was the civilian government apparatus of the federation where was the people were like it, it was like no one seemed to really tr even be as a straw person the other side of the argument that courting war with the klingons was bad regardless of what you think their threat level is or something like here well th that's the thing about that level of storytelling is they're just assuming that you the audience will agree with the standpoint of they the writers and that we will just assume that there are no shades, you know, like it's just black and white morality. Kirk is a, you know, member of the good guys, and, you know, Marcus is a member of the bad guys, and Khan is a member of the bad guys, and yet they never really show us right. <laughs> anything that anybody does that would make that level of uh, certainty uh, palatable. And you're right, they never debate the interesting questions right. here because well, like norm normally when you have a an enemy the, the 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 sort of moral failing of the extremist argument is that they aren't really as bad as you are making them out to be because no other civilization could be as bad there's no such thing as a people where every morning they get up and eat evil cereal and send their evil children to evil school and then spend the rest of the day plotting evil things. That just doesn't exist. So yeah. your your argument that they are pure evil is wrong, therefore the, the actions you feel are justified based on this position are also wrong. Yeah, what it's, I like... it's a much more interesting storytelling tack to take to say, well, what do these people disagree on? Yeah. Not, is this person just evil? But what is the basis of their disagreement and who's closer to right? You know, so, and, then I mean, I, and then I think it's fun to sort of turn the, the problem on its head. Like, like with the Borg, well, what the hell happens when we get closer to that point? If the Borg actually are a undiluted form of evil that is bent and completely capable of our destruction, does that, does that justify using Hugh as a bomb? And like, do, like, because the, the changelings are scary. Like, the ability to replicate anyone, anytime with flawless accuracy would be pretty scary and a major security threat. Does that, like, do, do the ends justify the means if the security threat is really that bad as opposed to just propaganda alleging it's that bad? So, like, there's layers and wheels and all kinds of things. So, yeah, there there's just more meat on this bone and it makes it fun to watch. I, I agree that... I, I I will sort of tip my hat as well. I I I agree with most of your like the questions you ask about Layton's specific plot are not quite it, 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 the plot is a little too clean overall. But well, that that's always where these kinds of stories well because you you it's it's hard to do 
like maybe later in the series when it would have been an arc of the season of the the, the inside the internal political machinations of Starfleet um, or something, or like maybe in a novel where you could build it a little more slowly, the, you, you could have solved those problems. But it doesn't detract from, you know, Leighton, Leighton may be, may, he may clearly be crossing some lines, but he's, he, even he himself, like Leighton in the, you know, 45 minutes of screen time he got, far more credible and complicated a person than, than uh, Admiral Marcus. Yeah, absolutely. Like um, even at the end, there's a reason you might even root for him. Right, like the the, the changelings do present a threat. Is, does that make it right? I don't know for sure. That's that's fine. That that's debatable. Um, like because even the way the episode presents, um, Leighton's sin. It's not his eventual crime is not his point of view that the changelings represent an extreme threat to Earth. It's that the way he chose to respond to it was to circumvent the free choice debate policy that the Federation is built on. That was where he went wrong. It wasn't even his his motivation, it was his action, which is more interesting than him yeah. just being an idiot or evil. Well, um, you know, it, it needs to be said, uh, and I did know this before I also read it in the background information, um, that the, the sort of overall shape of the plot is inspired by one of my uh, favorite book slash movies uh, of the 20th century called Seven Days in May, uh, which was, and if you haven't seen the movie, anybody who's listening, you really should. Uh, it's put out in 1963, uh, and it's about a military coup to overthrow uh, the government of the United States, uh, in which the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, conspires with the other joint chiefs to um, it w on the the motivation that there's going to be a disarmament treaty with the Soviet Union uh, that they don't believe the Soviets will adhere to, you know, so they feel that they're justified uh, for the security of the nation uh, in you know usurping the presidency, uh, you know, sort of destroying the democracy in order to save it. Um, you know, it's got Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas, and oh, it's just so good. Anyway, um, th this is this is quite substantially similar. Uh, it doesn't have the female element, uh, which actually is kind of too bad. Um, there's no real love interest here, uh, but the part of Seven Days in May hinges on a love interest. Um, it's just a terrific story idea. You know, it it's a perfect story for an American audience who's been thinking about these kinds of questions uh, for the past 50 years or so, you know, since the Cold War. Um, you know, this is coming at the end of the Cold War. Uh, you know, and, and we're in this sort of post-Cold War happy haze, right, uh, which makes it doubly impressive that they, you know, spun this out with the sort of terrorist attack and all that stuff. Um, all right. Well, that, that's enough about that. So <laughs> the writing is good. I think we both agree on that. And the acting was quite good. And uh, you mentioned a few things production-wise. Uh, you know, I loved the matte paintings uh, out the windows. The lighting kicked ass. Um, 
you know, and you you like the changeling effects, Kevin? Yeah, I thought they did a good job. Um, like the one of Leighton running off and turning into a bird. It was it was well placed inside the outdoor shot, which actually is more impressive because you know sunlight is you know a capricious uh, lighting source. Um, so everything the, the 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 compositing was very good this time. Um, another changeling shot that was good was the. Uh... Well, actually, two of them. One was the plant that was being uh, phasered, yeah. but also the briefcase uh, that turned into Odo. So there's a lot of good effects work in this. Um, you know, so if, you, if you're going to think about production values as sort of giving us enough to give us a great feel for the story, you know, and a feel for the place and a feel for the locations and a feel for the characters... You know, because the Jarashinyo makeup was good, too. Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard to find anything to fault with this. There, there was nothing that stuck out as ugly or weird. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I, I kind of went in thinking I was going to argue for a four, but I, I guess it's a five. It's, it just works on all all levels. Um it's yeah that was I, the, I, the only the only thing that i still stick to is what i feel are superfluous uh filler scenes near the beginning um you know like i think this story idea is so good that you can really just fill the entire episode with it i um, i can see that like i i don't mind them as much as you i get your point they just don't they don't bother me as much yeah, I, I was. Expect- I still think this is a five. I still think this is. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think top ten percent. Yeah, I would say the, it, it, the the few things that really got me were, um, I love that they had the sort of the philosophical drama play out through the characters we cared about, and this solves the problem of, it not descending into, just talking. There was a way to give life and action and movement to these to this debate. And they found the perfect way to do it with with you know father and son Cisco and I I love stuff like that I I, I especially you know as much of a nerd as I am and I can listen to exposition but you just, just tell show me display the things at work and that's much more interesting all the characters had ethical dilemmas no it, like no one save probably for Leighton himself was like crystal clear that there's only one course of action one of the things we love about star trek is people sitting around debating courses of action so like all of that was there and so it was it was good moral storytelling it was good philosophical storytelling it was and it was good star trek storytelling the whole the question now is how resilient is this federation way of life what are we willing to give up to protect it what does that mean that's that's interesting that's that's you know good so well and the crisis is precipitated by a fundamentally uh sci-fi slash fantasy problem you know the the idea of a changeling that can impersonate anybody and there are there i mean in fact i even take it back it's not even fantasy it's it's science fiction because the question is what can you marshal in your suite of technologies to uh counter such a threat you know yeah um so there's enough sci-fi here to sort of satisfy the the sort of stickler in me um 
Yeah, I'm gonna agree. I'm gonna agree with the five. I was expecting to give this a four as well. Um, I, I, you know, not to give away the story, but I, I will say I think the resolution is not as flawless as it could have been. It's a common problem for a Star Trek two-parter. You know, it's you know the setups amazing, and then actually trying to resolve it in 43 minutes proves a bit much for the uh, writing staff. But it's certainly not going to be a letdown. It's not going to be like birthright or even unification part two which we we thought was fine but not great by any means um yeah well you know uh, having watched this and, and thought about it uh you know it seems like most of my criticisms are criticisms of the follow-up so um so yeah, yeah. I'll the, the, the only flaw for me is the the filler um but it's not enough to knock it off the top ten percent. I mean, something's got to be in the top ten percent, <laughs> and if it's not, if it's not this, I don't know what it is, right? Yeah. Um. You know, like I know that maybe it seems like I've been hard on Deep Space Nine, uh, and I don't, I don't think I'm trying to be harder on it than the other shows. But I think it's got its own unique set of problems uh, to overcome, and you know, like you say, Kevin it's stories like this that are finally sort of doing that. They're finally kind of uh, shedding the baggage uh, and moving on to interesting stories. Now, it is, of course, a good question. Is, is this really a quote-unquote Deep Space Nine story? It's about the two, two of the characters that are on Deep Space Nine, but um, it, doesn't have, it doesn't have squat to do with Bajor. You know? I, I would say it, it, if we're... If we're accepting that uh, Deep Space Nine is about the darker side of the Federation, about the the gritty reality of the you know gritty reality of Star Trek or what have you, I think this is the quintessential Deep Space Nine story. It's the well, I agree thematically. I'm just saying that uh, if you're going to think about the introduction of the Defiant as sort of their first move away from the locale mm-hmm. that was the the anchor of the first two or three seasons, uh, this episode is really sort of the, the coming out, the stepping yeah. out. It's like, we're no longer tied to the space station. <laughs> it's just called Deep Space Nine. You know, that's what the show's called, hmm. right? Because, I mean, this show takes place almost entirely off of Deep Space Nine. And the follow-up this episode, gosh, do they? I don't think there's any scenes on Deep Space Nine at Yeah, all. there's stuff on the Defiant, but that's it. Uh, and, you know, this is what's going to happen with a lot of the Dominion War stuff. You know, it's just going to be like a Defiant-based show. Uh, not every episode, but for for some. Um, so I, I guess I'm just pointing that out. Not not as a an argument against the show. Uh, like, I'm not so in love with Deep Space Nine as a, as a backdrop that I'm offended that they've left it behind. Hey, look at it this way. Family takes place largely off the Enterprise. A, a, a reason the episode almost didn't happen. Still awesome. Yeah, and there's really no scene on the bridge, so... I think there's literally no scene on the bridge. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, I'm, just, I'm just pointing it out as a, as a note of the evolution of the show. Like, if you want to think about the Defiant and then the introduction of Worf and now this, um, you know, they're sort of shedding portions of the setup. Um, and, and I wonder how someone like Nana Visitor must have felt uh, reading a script like this. Hmm. You know, it's like, huh, 
guess they're moving away from all the Bajor stuff. Um, you know, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, great episode. Uh, I think it's, I think it's worthy of a 10. Um, you know, it's probably not as good as something like The Visitor, uh, but it's in the same ballpark. Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, that's it for uh, for us on uh, on Homefront, and we will be podcasting Paradise Lost. So uh, we will we'll be ba- back at it uh, dissecting yeah. this episode. Um, bad time, same bad channel. Yeah. Have a good night, everyone.